Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Andrew Feldman, co-founder and CEO of Cerebrus Systems. He's an entrepreneur dedicated to pushing boundaries in the compute space. Prior to Cerebras, he co-founded and was CEO of C-Micro, a pioneer of energy-efficient high-bandwidth microservers. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. Today we are here with Andrew from Cerebras. Welcome, Andrew. Please take us to the future. Let's start telling the story about how you guys going to change the world in the future, how the future looks like when you guys are really successful. Edmar, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Cerebrus was founded in 2016, and we're on a, on a mission to transform the computation underlying AI. And we saw an opportunity for a new type of computer, and that involved building a new type of processor, a new type of system that could do AI compute hundreds or thousands of times faster than the status quo. And we embarked on that journey. It took us to building the, the largest processor ever made. Not a little bit larger, but 56 times larger than the largest processor ever made. Our, wow. our processor called the Wafer Scale Engine has 2.6 trillion transistors. And the next largest processor has 50 odd billion. It's taken us to inventing technologies in chip manufacturing, in process, in packaging, in cooling. And in late 2019, we announced we'd solved this problem. This problem had been an unsolved problem in the entire history of compute. And we began shipping in late 2019, early 2020. In mid-21, we announced we'd managed to, to move to the, the next geometry, which shrunk from 16 to 7. And we had customers now in, in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia, all of whom are using our system to radically accelerate their AI compute, so to train faster, uh, to build bigger clusters, to build them quickly and easily, to spend less time doing distribution of their workload and more time doing AI. What we see when we look into the future, Edmar, is AI being part of, of everyday life, and it's slipping into the background, not in the foreground. So it's everyday, like, think like water in taps. You never think about it. And I know that. One thing that I think is important to point to people that are outside of the AI industry, most people don't understand how compute-intensive are the state of the art today in AI. Like those things that people see, the pretty demos like GPT-3 or Dolly, those things, you're not going to run those things in your house, man. You need like shit ton of compute to just run that. So if we want to have a future where we're going to actually use the AI and not just have like an experiment or uh, like just a prototype of them, we will need to improve massively what we can do. The compute used to train the state-of-the-art models is tens of megawatts. So it can either power a a small town or it can train (laughs) one of these models for a month or two. And they cost tens of millions of dollars in hardware to train. 
and yeah. they take months and months to train. Even the inference when you think about, even after they are trained, just to put up a big model like, let's say, 170 billion parameters like the GPT-3 or like the Bloom, recent big size Bloom model, which is open source, you would need like eight pretty big, like A180 gigabytes type of things. Even the inference, which is the should be the easier yeah. part of the problem. Yeah, the it takes hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars of compute in, yeah. in order to uh, render the image in Dali yeah. or the next sentence in the GPT-3 yeah. language model. And so th this is unbelievably expensive. It's power hungry. Yeah. And as a result, it's really been limited to a very small number of companies who can do it. Yeah, yeah and, but it's small. Uh, there's very few who can spend tens of millions of dollars and build a, like, a data center that's yeah. the size of a football field that houses tens of thousands of GPUs. You know, we, we, yeah, there's a handful of companies that, that right. did that. Like it's you, a handful you can count on the two hands. That's Literally, right. you can count in your hands the companies that did that. We think that's wrong, and we think that we should be able to build them up and have built a, a, a computer that can, can train those models, can can take just a couple of racks, cost a few million dollars, and train them in less time. And with that, we believe that, that instead of having a few companies that you can count on one hand, we count hundreds and hundreds of companies doing interesting AI, even on the largest language models. Yeah, this is, this is interesting. I see this being not only important for that part, but with your architecture would be possible also to train like bigger models than than we what we have today like what we can train models what else could you do of course we, 175 billion parameters is the largest sort of in production net network today yeah we have great faith that people will make them bigger and we can train models that are a trillion 10 trillion 100 yeah. trillion parameters and so we are providing an infrastructure that allows the ML researchers to, to create even bigger neural networks. How did you guys start this company? Like where did the, the idea came from? Like what, what was the inception of this? Well, the founders had all worked together at, at our last company. And we, we sold that to AMD in 2012. And we worked for AMD for a while. And then we began getting together and thinking about what we wanted to do. And we, we wrote two things on the whiteboard that we wanted to work together again, and we wanted to move an industry. We didn't want to do something trivial. We didn't want to do something incremental. We, we wanted to take our shoulders and push an industry and see if we could move it forward. When did you sell the, the previous company? 2007. 2007. It was called C-Micro. It was also in the computer business. We were in the first to build extremely energy-efficient servers. Yeah. I have this thesis about this, writing an essay about, I have this funny name for it called Nerds with Money. It's my, my main thesis. It's basically, I'm seeing a lot of people that have like the first company or have made money somehow. And then instead of like just buying a big house and chill out or doing that thing, they go for like really ambitious and interesting thing. Like instead of like, why would I spend my time and money just to... <laughs> It's a really it's 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 a different phenomenon when you think about like when you have like engineers having money, it's 
amazing things happen. <laughs> this is my thesis. I think it's a really interesting thesis. I, I think what makes you happy, I, I think, is sort of different for, for each person. And, and for us, solving problems that other people can't solve makes us happy. Right. Yeah. We, we get excited <laughs> when, when people tell us it can't be done or it will never work. We know we're onto something interesting. And yeah. we we engage with and, and have some of the richest and finest investors in the world. Um, and, you know, building cool things is something money can't buy. You have to do it. Yeah, you <laughs> right? have to do it. I mean, you, yeah. you can own a soccer team, but you can't play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't feel the glory of a good set of passes and a goal. You, you can be excited. You can be sitting in your owner's box and eating hors d'oeuvres. But I think the 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 magic is for people who enjoy it is yeah. building yeah. amazing things and and I think not not only that but there is a thing that people don't understand is that like money actually can't buy expertise. This is a mistake that people make a lot of the time because when they think that money can buy expertise, they are wrong because you can say like, but I can hire someone to do it. But in order to hire the correct person to do it and know that the person has the expertise to do it, you need to have the expertise yourself, at least at a certain level. I don't think money is a particularly, it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. I, I think for extraordinarily talented yeah. people that they always have many offers, I think you have to inspire them yeah. with a vision. You have to yeah. show them interesting work. I, I think in Silicon Valley, Ed, Ed Mark, I think it's easier to make money than find great projects to work on. Yeah, I think I think so as well. Yeah, I think the reason you know this is my fifth startup. And the reason I I do this is because I'm seeking extraordinary projects to work on. I'm seeking people, extraordinary people who love working on hard projects. People who enjoy being David against Goliath, right? Who yeah. who enjoy being yeah. the underdog. Who enjoy using their insight against the muscle of big companies. I think that there's a thing that's, I think that was from Sam Altman from, I think it's his open AI now. He's open AI now. He, he used to be like my community that he says about like hard startups. There's one thing that's easier about hard startups is that it's easier to hire great people. Because if you're working on a really hard thing, like people would, would prefer to work with you and like really ambitious projects, like really good people are really driven, really ambitious to go. Edmar, not only is it, I mean, Sam's really smart. He's one of our investors and, and he is leader of OpenAI. What's easy about hard startups is hiring exceptional people because they are driven to work on exactly the hard problems that, that, that you are. But it's also easier to inspire your vendors and your partners. In what we do in our type of, of deep tech, we need partners and manufacturing partners and component partners. We need a whole ecosystem and they get inspired. Yeah. People well. want you to succeed, right? They do. People like they, root for you. They, they, they want to work on cool variations of their product that will work in somebody else's cool product. They're inspired by a big vision and that they can play a role in, in a big vision. Yeah. So th this is this is interesting in the sense that you guys came together and said, like, what's the next move? We want to transform an industry. And then how we go about, like, 
vetting ideas, looking at things? Like, how was those, those that process, that stage, that Iberian stage? You know, I'm uh, I'm not the, the the technical visionary, Edmar. I've been partners with Gary Lauterbach for 20 years. He's our CTO and was the CTO at our last company. And I've been working now with Sean Lee and Michael James and JP Fricker for nearly that long. And we began meeting and we think like computer architects. We say, what hardware might we build that would improve the performance of a workload? And we turn that around and say, once you compile that workload, what would be the perfect machine to run it? And one day we were thinking along these lines and Gary leaned back and he said, why would a graphics processing unit, which had been tuned for 20 years for graphics, why would it be good at AI? And wouldn't it be surprising if a machine that had been tuned for one workload ended up being very good at another one? And that sort of like, huh, we began thinking, and so we, we dug into the characteristics of AI work after it's compiled. What's hard about it? What's interesting about it? What makes it different from a database or web, you know, web traffic or a hundred other things computers do? Then we looked at the graphics processing unit and its architecture. And what we discovered was that the graphics processing unit was less bad than the CPU, but it wasn't the right machine for the job. And we weren't alone in that. Google created a TPU that's not a G. I mean, nobody who started with a clean sheet of paper built a a graphics processing unit for this. But when we saw it, we, it it gave us sort of a a light in a tunnel that said we could, it it created the, the question, could we build a better machine for this work? What's hard about this work? What dimensions could we innovate on? And what's hard about this work isn't the calculation. It's the movement of information after it's been calculated, right? It's a network. So it's a communication structure. Yeah. yeah. And, right, it's a neural network. And the, the, the network part turns out to be the very difficult part. The communication of the calculations have to be done again and again and again. And we saw an opportunity to move, to to invent a technique that allowed us to move information more quickly and at lower power by keeping it on the same wafer, on the same very large piece of silicon. And that cut at the core of what's hard about this work. And, you know, NVIDIA so the same, same problem. A, so they so call, you, do, the same architecture, you, you have the memory and the processing in the same? We do. In the same chip? We do. Oh, I see. We have the yeah. memory and the processing. It's 850,000 cores, each with its own fully distributed memory. Oh, I see. This is interesting. And so we keep, yeah. we keep work that other people need to move off chip back and forth. We keep that all on chip. And that limits the amount of information you have to move. It limits the distance information has to move when it needs to move. And as a result, you go faster. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense because it's everything. Yeah, yeah, this is interesting. But what about the whole supply chain of doing a thing like this? Because you're talking about a new 
different of architecture. Like you need to do a lot of from bottom up work to make this thing work, right? And, and are we, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. We have, you know, longstanding relationships with fabs. They have to fab your part if you make a chip. We have longstanding relationships with contract manufacturers who assemble. We have relationships with component vendors that are 20, 25 years old. And we are unafraid to design printed circuit boards, to build metal chassis, to solve cooling problems. We're sort of, we do fearless engineering. Yeah. And just because we don't know how to do it when we start doesn't mean the problem isn't susceptible to good engineering methodology. Yeah, this is like... What what's the type of go to market you guys are thinking? You think about selling the hard itself? You're gonna provide it as a service for three parts sure. your own data center? What we, what we do have, you think? We have hardware deployed around the world today. We have customers in Europe, like European Parallel Computing Center, LRZ in Bavaria. We have customers across the US, including customers like GlaxoSmithKline in the pharmaceutical space. We have customers in in Asia, such as Tokyo Electron Device and in manufacturing. Some customers purchase hardware and deploy it on their premise. Some of them subscribe to it and it lives on their prem or on our prem. And others, we have cloud partners and they, they rent it by the week or the day or the month and they, they get access to it in a cloud model. So we have multiple ways for, for customers to to use the computer. To actually use it to compute. Yep. Oh, this is interesting. So we, which one do you think is going to be your biggest model in the future? I think, what will do bet? Well, right now, it, it's uh, we're about 70% on-prem. I think over time, it probably is 50-50 on-prem and off. There are some customers who aren't going to put their data in the cloud whether they're in the military or, or whether they're in pharma or oil and gas or other sectors, Total Energies is a, is a customer of ours. And we were able to show them performance gains of hundreds of X over their GPUs. Now, when you're 228 times faster than your competitor and your customer is so excited they publish a paper on it, <laughs> then, then you're making progress. Yeah. And that, that, that's where yeah. we are. And on the... Let's flip to the software side. Like when you do like a different architecture or thing like you guys are doing, like suppose that I have a company, we have a huge load to do with our neural net. We did our models in like, say, PyTorch or TensorFlow. Like how hard it is to port the model to run in your in your hardware? It's, a, it's the right question, Amara, I think. We can take your TensorFlow or your PyTorch exactly as you wrote it and run it on our machine. Oh, this is cool. And that, that oh, was cool. one of the great advantages that PyTorch and TensorFlow brought is they provided an upper layer language that ML practitioners could write in and they could transport their models to CPUs, to graphics processing units, to accelerators like ours. And that meant we had to build a compiler but we've done that, and, and now you can take your, your, your PyTorch, your TensorFlow, and exactly as you wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, this is good. This is good. It would be a huge problem if you needed to make people 
like change their models or use another of type of language of two. It would be because, yeah, there's so much already like network effects in using PyTorch or well, remember that, that would not exist. PyTorch and TensorFlow existed is because people didn't like CUDA. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The <laughs> Basically, yeah. This is because people don't like writing in C-like languages that are low level. And what the, the first sort of framework authors, whether they were at cafe or, or in the professor's labs, they wanted to write, describe yeah. their models in Python, right? That's the yeah. language of the data True. scientist. That's the language of the yeah. practitioner. And then Google and Facebook w- wanted to be sure that their investment in the language, in the models, was portable. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. This 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 makes a, a big difference, yeah. And I think uh, nowadays even more, like, people tend to uh, try and even to, like, standardize, like, moving models from TensorFlow to PyTorch. Yeah, I, I think as, as TensorFlow and PyTorch have matured, each one is looking at what the other one did better. Yeah, and they're, they're saying, oh, PyTorch did this way better. How do we implement that, something like that in TensorFlow? And, and PyTorch is saying, oh, look at what TensorFlow did. They, maybe this bit is better. How do we implement that capability? Yeah. Tell us a, a little bit about like being a founder in a company like this that's so complex in terms of what you guys are doing. What people tend to get wrong when you explain this or explain to to potential employees, prospects, people in general, like what people tend to get wrong or misunderstand more commonly? I think deep tech is hard. And I think when you're building hardware and systems like we do, it's hardware and software in a computer together. I I think sometimes investors bring a very software-focused mentality, SaaS, whatever sort of last three successes their firm invested (laughs) and i think hardware systems behave differently and we have history on them we have history on switches and routers and servers and storage devices we know a lot about them but sometimes investors want to look over and say well why is it like salesforce well it's a, it's a different thing. Uh, it's, 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 thing. Yeah, definitely. it's it, it, now there are things we can learn from the SaaS world, but I, I think some investors don't haven't thought through clearly. Now, ours have. We were fortunate. We had the best investors in the business. We work with Benchmark and Foundation and Eclipse and Altimeter and Kotu and just some of the the truly premier investors in the business, and they understood. And they also understood where they didn't understand, which is a really yeah. good thing as an which investor. Is... I think it's okay to know things really well, and it's okay to not know things. But when you think you know something you don't know, that's a big trap yeah. for everybody. And avoiding that trap is something good investors do, in my experience. Yeah, and I think there is this difference of the it's hard, takes more time. I agree. But there is the other side as well. There's the upside of that as well, that once you do it right, it's not easy to replicate. Or it's something. extremely hard to replicate. It's extremely hard to replicate, and it's difficult. And the truth is, there aren't very many world-class hardware teams. Yeah, yeah. In the world, I mean, the, the number of people who've taped out five nanometer part, the number of teams, is yeah. very small. And, and the time necessary, even even a, a top team, 
it's not like they're going to like just wake up and look at it and do it. They would need to spend like there's no magic people like that. They would need to spend a lot of time like thinking and thinking and implementing. And so it's, there's this side as well. This is up. This is a problem with the hard part, but this is an upside of that. I think as well. Like if you are able to do it, like if you survive and, and and are able to actually achieve something, then you have something that it's really valuable. That that's right. Hard to. That, that that that's right. Where we only worry about sort of solving our customers' needs, I think, and that's nice if we can build it and if we execute. And we solve customers' needs, and that, that's because what 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 we've achieved so far far in the foundation was unbelievably hard, and it's produced tremendous advantage. Yeah, I think there's this this thing about deep tech startups that fascinates me about a lot is that it's much more about delivering the thing that you are saying that you're gonna do than actually people want it because usually I think so the value prop is so clear and so better than everything else that the problem is delivering on it. Like if you can to tell me like he wanted a AI chip that is like better than the GPU and 100 times better. And that just looks like a sales, uh, used car salesman type of pitch, right? So the pitch not, it's not that impossible pitch to sell. Like, do you have it or do you don't? Yeah, you know? look, it's more like delivering on it, right? <laughs> I, I think, Edmar, that's a really good point. I, I think... You might think of the world along our startups along two axes. And one axis, the x-axis is, can you build it? And the y-axis is, does the market want it? Yeah. And the hardest companies are, have historically been in this category where the market really wants it if only you can build it. And battery companies are in that category. If you build it to the specs you think, the market is unbelievably big and it's proven a, an, an unbelievably difficult challenge to actually build those good batteries. We like those problems. I like those problems that, that the, the challenge and the risk is in engineering and we yeah, control that. Yeah. I think that's what, what I like to say to people about this is like, you have like different profile risks, like common startups, let's say Uber or what, like shallow tech things. It's like low product tech risk high market risk and then on deep tech you have the other way around that's right. I mean, like look the, the challenge uber had i mean it was unimaginable i mean you had to fight the taxi the taxi medallion yeah. system in cities <laughs> around the world and there, there is no more corrupt and more sort of yeah. uh entrenched organization yeah. than taxis yeah. And they had to in every single city every, in every single city, city in the world city around in the world. any what an, I mean, any country is the what same sorry bogglingly complicated challenge that was yeah and but yeah. it wasn't technical it wasn't hard technology it, it was this sort of unbelievably complex problem of you know you gotta have different yeah. rules in san jose than you do in san francisco yeah I mean, you've got yeah neighborhood crazy complex go-to-market so the complexity is in the go-to-market not in the tech and the product side actually this i think is the thing in the, the, yeah in the companies like that and i see this and i see these people people don't understanding this difference between those companies which is like there's a tech component on them for sure you need to have engineers and you have to have people there but this is not actually a tech company we can use that definition for like the stock market because it's really different from let's say a brick and mortar store thing but it's more like a tech enabled company let's say than like a really like 
tech as its core, let's say. Like, but this... Yeah, I think many of those companies are using tech to, to do something that was always done a little more efficiently. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. U- U- Uber did a couple of things. It, it turned your cell phone into a, a remote control for the world, right? Uber and Instacart yeah. and all these things, right? I mean, yeah. you, you, you can sit yeah. bone your car and you got a car that arrives, you got your groceries that arrive. And, but with yeah. driving and, and groceries and all those things have been around a very, very long time. So they sort yeah. of reorganize the existing world in a much more efficient way. Yeah, I think so. I think the software is eating the world original famous essay from, from Horowitz. It's a little bit like that. Like It's like you're taking all their industry and adding the power of software and computing to them and just revamping them more than actually creating new tech with it. It's, like, it's a little bit like what happens when we get like electricity. A lot of things we already used to do, and then you can you can get to get all the things that you used to do, but for new, better version now. Exactly. I like a, I, I think those of us in infrastructure, those of us who build, compute, or storage, or networking, we are very comfortable with people saying software is the world, because without hardware, there's no software. And I think. You know, in the in the early '90s, I was with one of the companies that, that pioneered hardware-based switching and routing, and there were about 15 or 20 companies. And together, we invented technology that drove the cost of IP networking to approximately zero. Now, most people have forgotten the names of these companies. Right, Cisco bought many of them. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Juniper Arista bought some others, and and. But there were many of these companies, and we all put a little brick in in the walls that that made IP networking free. Yeah. Now we we didn't do WhatsApp, but there's no WhatsApp without free IP networking. There's no Viber. Yeah, sure. There's no yeah. right. Yeah. And when yeah. you're an infrastructure builder, you take great joy when other people put their ideas on top of yours. When they use, even when they don't know it, when they use things that you built or that your ideas helped along to change yeah. the world, because you built the road or the railroad tracks and the yeah. world's moving on them. You know, I, I, it, it's I, okay I, that my mother-in-law doesn't know anything about AI compute, but when she asks Alexa to play Frank Sinatra, and Alexa yeah. puts together a Frank Sinatra playlist that includes songs she forgot she liked. How cool is that? That's yeah. the industry I'm in, yeah. and that's what we're trying to do better. And I think there's there's a good thing about infrastructure there that that I I like to say that the second it's it's harder to understand a little bit because it's, it's like a, a it's, you need to do a little bit of second order thinking about it. You do because when you see it. And you need to think like it's like I was talking recently with a friend, an engineer friend, about like from this whole new AI wave, people don't give enough credit to the tools actually that were created in order to make this revolution happen right now. Like when you, you have something like PyTorch or th- even even the software tools like PyTorch or TensorFlow, what they allowed people to do by making it easier and like hiding some complexity it's like people don't understand how powerful it is because you don't see like you need to be a little bit 
on the engineer side to look at the tool and see all the amazing possibilities of a new tool instead of just like the, the final application, right? You know, AI between about 1995 and 2014 was an utter backwater. There was, yeah, and what, what, what happened in 2014, we began putting it on a different type of computer. And yeah, once we, yeah. once we began putting it on a different type of computer, we began saying, oh, whoa, look at this. It's really providing insight. And then we began writing software tools that made it easier to put it on, on computers. Yeah. And then we began yeah. writing tools that made our data pipelines easier. And then we began, and, yeah. and the result, when all of that is said and done, is a better language model or better vision model. Yeah. I think that this there is a lesson, I think, as well, for founders in general, that I talk a lot when I do like, I do like small really small angel investing in, in, in deep tech and things like that. And if I talk with founders, there's always an opportunity when you are looking at the new tools that are being created or the new infrastructure that are being built. There's always there's always a new set of like, it's almost like it's expanding the, the set of possibility space and the infrastructure types of business are the ones that are creating the next adjacent possible layer of things. There's always things to be done there. I, I think that's right, Edmar. I think that when there's a new type of, in, in our space, when there's a new type of workload yeah. like AI, not only is it that the existing compute is not well suited for it, but maybe the existing storage, maybe the existing processing tools, maybe the existing, I mean, the, the opportunity often has a whole ecosystem yeah. Of which True. infrastructure, hardware, and software, and compute is one piece, but storage and networking. I mean, there's a reason that NVIDIA bought Mellanox is because the AI problem didn't fit on a GPU. They needed to tie them together. So the problem yeah. spanned compute, it spanned networking. It, 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 it immediately broke out of sort of the traditional compute area. Yeah, and there hasn't been a computer company that that had meaningful switching. Maybe Sun, you know, Intel has a little bit, but I mean, I mean, Sun used to used to have so many co interesting things, right? It's a it's a company that I think that is, I don't think they they get the love they deserve with everything that they did. I think they did a lot of cool things. Well, they, I think that maybe they didn't succeed as they should have. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they clearly pioneered yeah, in a lot of things. A lot yeah, of things. A lot of things. Yeah, I think that computer science slash computer engineering is a so fast moving field that we don't care a lot about history or history keeping. We are not good at that. I think there is no, there's not a lot of like. It's, it's strange to be an industry that's so young, but at the same time with so like a short type of memory type like things. Like it's just so hard to like think about everything that that came before. Thinking about like your experience now, and do you have any like advice or tip that you would you would give for someone like starting in deep tech or a founder wanted to to do it? I don't think this is the easiest way to get rich. I think this is, <laughs> if that's high on your list, I, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I, I think you, you have to love it. You, you, you have to love this type of work and the type of people who like to do this type of work. And you have to love building things. And 
I think for people who who love building things, uh, they love to be challenged by increasingly more difficult things to build, and they love to build things and, and solve these puzzles and, and do things that, that others are afraid to do or can't do. Or and and that's a, a passion. And I, I think if you have that passion, there's no more rewarding place to be. And it doesn't matter whether you're doing, you know, CRISPR engineering at, in biotech or you're doing building batteries or rocket ships or, 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 or AI computers. You, you have to be sort of, you have to love the process and the journey and the, uh, the problem solving. You guys doing what you do, Remember of a question that this, this lecture from probably you are aware of, of like you and your research from, from Hemming, Richard Hemming. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have, have seen it where he talks a little bit about the Bell Labs and all those things. And then a part of it that really uh, captured me when I watched it the first time, actually I read it, a transcript of it, that when went around the Bell Labs of asking people like, are you working on the, the most important problem in your field? And if the answer was no, he asked why for two people around like the, the, the Bell Labs. And I thought about it quite for a while. Like, why do you think people don't go after those? Because think about the question is not a particular type of hard problem. It's like what you think is the most important problem in your field. Look, I, and I think they're hard. And often you fail. And you have to be yeah, comfortable. Failure with part. It. Yeah, you have to be comfortable with that. I, I think you have to, to prefer to fail in pursuit of an extraordinary challenge than succeed in pursuit of a mediocre challenge. And that's not yeah. for everybody. Yeah, I think like the the risk you do have to, on you, it. You do have to take risk. But I, I think most of us feel that There's risk in not achieving your potential also. Yeah, And that's true. an insidious risk. And that the risk of trying your best to solve an unbelievably hard problem, the risk of failure is, is a risk you'd rather take than waste a portion of your career on an ordinary problem. Yeah. It's more like one, it's more like an insidious, like omission type risk. That's and right. The other one is a little bit more like uh, active yep. type of risk. So it's That's like right. the two different types. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. It makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. You are taking a risk either way, but the other one, it looks like it's not a risk, like it's an illusion. It's not a risk. And then 10 years later, you are like, I could have done so much. That's more. exactly right. That is exactly right. Become one of those guys that are always like, I could have, I should have, I could have, should have, have done X, Y, and Z. And, and then, then yep. it's you. So we are wrapping up to the end. I think that I have like two final questions. Like, do you have any recommendation of any book, movie, TV show, video game? Anything that you would like to, to recommend for us? Yeah, I think a book that I think about and was assigned to me to read in, in business school about leadership is called The Endurance. It's the story of Ernest Shackleton. And oh, cool. his ill-fated sort of expedition and the lengths he went to try and save his team. 
that's a, a, a book I give to, to young leaders. And there's yeah. another book that I, I recommend called One Bullet Away. And it's about how the Marine Corps selects its leaders. And oh, it's interesting. The, the military I had never heard about it before. Militaries one are really, bullet away. One bullet away. Militaries are really interesting, right? They're one of the few institutions that have been around for three or four thousand years. And they're sold, one of their sole jobs is to, to pick leaders. Yeah, true. And this is a book, not intentionally about it, but about a, one, one officer's experience. But for me, it was sort of very interesting to think about how, uh, how the Marine Corps sort of goes about selecting leaders. Yeah, I think that both books are really interesting in the sense that they, I never heard about both, but both looks like really good things about how to do hard things. How to do hard things. Right? It's, it's, it's like there are books about like you need to go, you need to go after, there's not a lot of people in the world doing hard things actually. So you need to go and pick, Wherever you can find those people doing hard things, you can learn a lot of actually people who actually actively doing it, right? And then if you if you need a book about startups, I think the the only book that I ever read that smelled and felt every day like my experience was Ben Horowitz's book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Ah, very good book. As I love book. it, yeah, as well. And that that really that that has the the feel of someone who was. In the trenches every day. In the trenches, yeah, in the trenches. Is what what I feel about this book as well. Reading it was like as a founder, I say like this is this sounds real. This sounds yep. this sounds like what it is like the day to day of the the grind of it. And my last question is, if you could send like a message, one single message to everybody on Earth, what it would be? Wow, if I could send a message to everybody on Earth, I, I think it would be. Uh... A joke that made everybody laugh for a second. I think <laughs> wouldn't that be a nice? You had seven billion people laughing at the yeah. same time. Wouldn't that be glorious? I mean, just a joke. Yeah, that... Every culture worked for every people around the world. Just one <laughs> joke and bang, that we'd have just this this split second where everybody on yeah. the planet was smiling and laughing. Yeah, that would be glorious. Yeah. You'd be known. You'd be known for ages as the glorious second. Most likely. <laughs> I think that'd be okay. That'd be yeah, okay. that'd be okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, Andrew. It was amazing to talk to you. It was a really great interview. Really good. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.